Good evening. We, we got there. Um, so uh, my name is Bernie, and uh, it's great to be here with you tonight. Can we have the house lights up a little bit more, and maybe a little bit less of this so I can see people? Oh, hi. People are actually here. The room didn't vacate when you heard my name. That's quite nice. Um, so I, I will be sharing with you tonight in the part three of our Micah series, and like uh, Monica was saying, it hasn't been a great series so far. I mean, we had Craig uh, open us up in week one, uh, kind of explaining to us what a prophet is, uh, and then explaining kind of the environment that Micah was speaking into, and then of course the fact that Micah was a guy from the country who came into the big city uh, to deliver God's word. And then last week we had Colin uh, with Micah sharing about God's heart for justice, about how God wanted to let uh, Israel and, all, and the people know that he wasn't happy with what was going on and Micah was speaking into the injustices because there was a lot of corruption. Uh, it was a really wealthy society, but a very spiritually vacant society. And so uh, through Micah, God was speaking into that environment and challenging them uh, on the social injustices of that time, including uh, the, own pri the priests and stuff of um, the time as well, because they were all on payroll and stuff like that. It's insane the, the things the government wanted them to say. So, um, Tonight we're carrying on, like Monica said, uh, part three. Uh, it's going to be good, it's going to be exciting, might be a little challenging, but that's okay. Uh, but before we get into that, I'm going to pray. Father God, I thank you uh, for each and every single person that is here tonight, Lord. I thank you uh, that they came out tonight and they're here in this place, Lord. And I pray uh, that tonight that you uh, use my words to do something special in each and every single one of them, Lord. I pray that you uh, be tangibly felt here in this place tonight, Lord, uh, and that everything that is said... Uh, is what you want to be said, uh, and everything that, that is done tonight is what you want to have done, be done, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. So, before we get into tonight's uh, verses and things like that, I have, I have a question, or it's more of a statement, I guess, really. Isn't it weird how Old Testament God can kind of seem really angry and judgmental and like, laying down like the smack down like all the time whereas kind of like new testament god is kind of like lovey dovey hey i'll be your best friend hey that's okay hey i'm your shepherd like there's kind of these two different versions of god and, and for most of us sometimes we ask the question okay like at this point here did god have like a personality change and now he's like this or did he have a change of heart and that's why he's like that a lot of the reason why we're doing this Micah series is because a lot of people do wrestle with that idea, that kind of tension that God seems this way here, but it's kind of different over here. And so tonight, through what I will be sharing and looking at the verses in Micah, I'm going to try and hopefully kind of tie these two together and hopefully reveal that it's actually the same God throughout and that his personality is the same throughout, which is a, a, a big mission, a big task. Uh, I'm only going to dabble in it. If you have harder questions about this, feel free to go see John Douglas. He's in the sixth row on the left-hand side over there, um, and he'll be more than welcome to answer any of your questions. Hey, John. I dobbed him in there. He didn't know I was going to do that. It was good. All right. But um, and I think to help us understand this, uh, in a way of understanding the God we serve, and the God who created us, we need to understand the idea of narrative. Now, to understand narrative, we're going to have to go all the way back to sixth form high school, media studies class. 
So let me just transport you back there for a second. For me, it's about 10 years. For others of us, it might be a little bit longer, but that's okay. We're all going to get there. So back when I was in media studies, uh, we would we'd study films, I'd look at their plots, look at the stories and the themes that they're trying to tell. You did this, we did, would do this a bit in English as well, but media studies in particular was the, was the place where this kind of really uh, came to a head or was really prominent. And what we would find as we'd study these popular films is that there would be the same trend, the same set of kind of particular plot lines in terms of every movie would kind of go along the same kind of up-down uh, story. And not to, not to say like the exact plot lines were the same, like it wasn't like the princesses in a castle, castle catches on fire, hero saves the day. It wasn't like, it wasn't, had nothing to do with castles per se, but the themes behind those, the plot points behind those were very similar. And you'll actually find today in most popular movies that nothing has changed, that it's still these exact same five points. And so I want to begin with that. And as you can see, I've, I've put some stools on the table, so uh, on the stage. So I've got five different points I kind of want to go into. The first one, uh, the first plot point in any story is the setup. Now, the setup is your introduction. It's your establishing uh, the environment, what's going on. Are you in a jungle? Are you on a spaceship? It gives you a little bit of detail about the different characters, but not too much, just a little bit, just enough to establish where we're at. That's the setup. That's establishing where we're at. So that, that happens at the beginning. Then very quickly, we move on over here to the next plot, which is the development. Now, the development is generally a positive thing. It's normally focused on a single character growing in a certain way. For example, like in the Spider-Man movie, where Peter Parker becomes bitten by the spider and instantly becomes like awesome. That would be a development. Another version of this is say uh, we find out more of a character's backstory like they didn't know this now but soon they'll realize that that guy in the corner was actually a zomboy cowboy from the future here to destroy them all you know it's it's a developing point it gives you more information as you can tell I kind of like stories and I'm a bit weird about it but that's okay so you have your your setup from the setup you develop and that development is tends to be positive and makes things kind of go like this that feelings are good. Things are going great. Things are going awesome. It's great. It's awesome. Until this point. The dark moment when everything comes crashing down. The, the girl that the main character loves gets cancer. The guy goes to war and dies. The plane crashes. You know, all those kind of tragic things that leaves you screaming, that's so unfair, or leaves you crying, like, I just want the Kleenex worse. Everything, it's, it's that tragic moment that you feel like you're not going to be able to recover from, or the movie's not going to be able to recover from. So, set up, development, dark moment. This, this part can actually come earlier, uh, but it, it always happens. Always, there's always a clincher. There's always a dark moment. And then... If things feel like they couldn't get any better, we have the hero moment. Now what happens here is a, either a main character or, or a group of people begin to be able to overcome what is happening here. Or they do eventually kick whatever this thing is butt and, and it wins. This is the winning moment. This is the part where the hero comes in and saves the day. The part where we jump up out of our seats in the movie theater and we're like, yes, yes. Freedom! You know, it's, it's, it's those parts where we get really excited because the, 
the underdog has like come out from nowhere and has taken down the, the, the boxing champion or whatever. It's those moments. Those moments are the hero moments. And then because of what happens in the hero moment, we have this, the finale, the resolution, the what changes now because of what happened there. What comes next and what is different for what comes next because of what happens there. So these are, those, these are the five points. These are the kind of like the, the roller coaster we go on in most popular movies. For example, say the, the entire Taken franchise. Uh, everything is kind of good. Oh, they're kind of like getting back together as a family a little bit. Girl gets taken. Liam Neeson saves the day. Yeah, we're a happy family. Yeah, Liam's awesome. Woo woo woo. Taken, taken two. <laughs> Everything's kind of good. You know, family units getting back together. Uh, yeah, it's good. They're hanging out in Istanbul. It's wicked. Development. Oh, the, the relationships are developing. Sad point. Liam Neeson and his lover are taken away. Oh no, disaster. Liam Neeson saves the day again. Woohoo! Everything's good. It's going to be great. Everything's awesome. Taken three. <laughs> I don't need to go there. You get the idea. It's, it's this thing where it kind of like, yeah, things are great. Oh no. Yeah, Liam Neeson. Um, uh, it's, this, it's this up, down roller coaster and it's and I'm not I'm kind of I find it funny that we that this is the popular storyline but at the same time I'm not surprised I find it quite ironic given that we're actually ourselves part of a grander narrative that goes exactly like this if you think about the biblical narr narrative that we have we've got creation development things are pretty sweet between Adam and Eve and God it's good times fall happens sin enters the world. And I should make a point here that developments can still happen during the dark moment, but they're developments that never seem to overcome what's going on with this until you reach this point. So we've got a long, a long period of our, of our history where you know, awesome things are happening with the Israelites and, and different prophets and things like that, but it's not enough to overcome the dark moment which has been sin entering the world. That is until, of course, Jesus arrives. And when Jesus arrives, he flips the script. Things are different. Things change. And now things are different. And that's the resolution. That's the ongoing thing. Things are now changed and different. So we ask ourselves, what changes? What happens next because of what happened there? Not only does it happen in that bigger narrative, but if you look at the scriptures, at the stories that fill our Bible, they kind of go through this again and again and again, almost as if God put those stories in there as a prelude to the ultimate main event. And, I, and as I was thinking about it and reflecting, I'm like, that can't be just coincidence. I mean, that's, that, obviously it is God trying to let his people know, hey, I'm coming, redemption is coming, the hero is coming to save the day. Because you think about it, you look at the little stories, you look at like David and Goliath, God steps in. You look at Joshua, God steps in. You look at Moses, God steps in again and again and again. You look at Esther. You go to the New Testament, you look at the story of Jesus healing the lame man. You look at the story of the, the woman caught in adultery. You look at the stories about the disciples in the cages and acts and how God just busts them open. Again and again, God is saying through these different stories, hey, you can't, you can't do this, but I can. 
you can't do this, but I can, and I'm, I'm going to show up, and I'm going to make things good. For me, this is the key in terms of trying to link what seems like two very different versions of God together because we see this exact same narrative happening all throughout the Old Testament and then all throughout the New Testament. A God with different personalities couldn't do that. A God with different mindsets couldn't do that. He'd, he'd maybe do that for a while and then change his idea. No, I don't want to do this whole redemptive thing. I don't want to keep coming to the rescue. But he consistently does it the entire way through. And he continues to do it today. I mean, miraculous healings, missionaries in the jungle being attacked by witch doctors, and then God stopping the witch doctors mid-air while they're trying to attack him. You know, God is still active and moving and doing things today, and he keeps stepping in and saying, hey, I got this. Okay, so narrative. What does that have to do with Micah? What does that have to do with the series we're in? Well, spoiler alert, Micah, through Micah, God is about to drop the biggest spoilers of that time. He's about to let his people know what's coming for me, I, I can't stand people that spoil movies. I can't stand people that story, spoil stories or games or anything like that. I, I need to ride the roller coaster. I need to go through every heartbreaking moment. I need to go through every high. I can't, if I find out what's going to happen, I get so frustrated. I get upset. I get to the point where there's not even any point watching the thing. As soon as I found out about the stab stab thing with Jon Snow, I was like, no, no point. It's no point, because I like to ride the roller coaster. On the other hand, though, Vika can't stand the roller coaster. She needs to know what's going to happen. And so we'll be watching movies that I've seen before, and Vika will be asking me, so what's going to happen with this person? Is this person going to die, or is, are they going to be all right? What's going to happen? And for me, I'm just like, hey, just sit back and watch it. And for her, that is probably the most absolutely frustrating thing I could possibly say in that moment. Because for her, she, she wants to know so that she can prepare, so that she can be ready for what is to come. Because she might need to get ready for, say, a jump scare or a scene that she doesn't want to look at. She wants to be ready for those moments. And through Micah, in these chapters we're about to read, God is, is saying what's going to happen next so that the people of Israel can prepare, so that those who listen can hear it and get ready for what is to come. Because what is going to come is going to change everything. It's also to let them know that God sees how things are going and how empty they've become, that they can't fix themselves or the corrupt elements of society. He's, Mike is going to give them a preview of what's to come and say, hey, you've got to get ready for this. So what I'm going to do is we're going to read through uh, Micah 4 uh, and then uh, Micah chapter 5, just the first five verses as well. Um, it's not going to be on the screen, but I know every single person here has a phone. So feel free to grab it out and read in the, the translation that you like the most. Uh, I'm going to be reading, I think it's NIV. But we're just going to turn through it. And as we go through it, I'll try and connect some dots here um, in terms of what Micah is saying alludes to, what's coming, what the spoiler is. Because sometimes you can read like a tech report about like the upcoming iPhone, and it makes no sense at all until someone explains it to him, like, that's actually just a fancy word for a new um, LED screen. So, um, so what I'll do is I'll try and connect some dots here. 
So starting in chapter 4. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will take up sword against nation. Uh, Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid. For the Lord Almighty has spoken. All the nations may walk in the name of of their gods, but we walk in the name of the Lord, our God, forever and ever. So we'll hold there for a second. So what Micah is, is, is prophesying of these people is that there'll be a time where the Lord will come and he will reign and he will be sovereign. Everybody will be under God. And when that happens, there will be peace. There'll be no need for war. There'll be no need for fighting against one another. There will be absolute peace because God is completely in control. Does that sound like a time that's coming at the end of our lives? I think so a little bit. It also, it also has things in there. God will judge. God will make decisions. What this is alluding to is the time will come where God will reign sovereign in this world. So that's that part. We'll move into, we'll move into six, uh, verse 6. In that day, declares the Lord, I will gather the lame, I will assemble the exiles and those I have brought to grief. I will make the lame my remnant, those driven away a strong nation. The Lord will rule over them in Mount Zion from that day and forever. As for you, watchtower of the flock, stronghold of daughter of Zion, the former dominion will be restored to you. Kingship will come to daughter Jerusalem. Why do you now cry aloud? Have you no king? Has your ruler perished? That pain seizes you like a woman in labor. Writhe in agony, daughter Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you must leave the city to camp in the open field. You will go to Babylon. There you will be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you out of the hand of your enemies. But now many nations are gathered against you. They say, let her be defiled. Let our eyes gloat over Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them like sheaths to the threshing floor. Rise and thresh, daughter Zion, for I will give you horns of, bro- of iron, I will give you hooves of bronze, and you will break into pieces many nations. You will devote their ill-gotten gains to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of all the earth. I want us to focus in this part just quickly on the, uh, in verses 10, the writhing and agony part. What God is saying here through Micah is, hey, there's going to be an uncomfortable time ahead. It's going to be painful because if, if you, you've got to remember that uh, where our scriptures end in the Old Testament, there's still a, there's a huge gap between that and where the New Testament begins. A good uh, few hundred years, I, I believe. Um, so there's a big gap. And we don't really hear much about what happens to the Israelites during that time. And, and this is God here is speaking through Micah saying, hey, it's going to be painful. There's going to be some, some troubled times and I'm going to seem distance, but it's going to be okay. You're going to give birth to something that is going to be crazy good. 
I have a few friends currently who are, who are pregnant, and every single one of them is like, oh, it hurts. Um, but I know for a fact that when they hold that baby in their arms, when they see its eyes staring back at you, just their brain's going to explode um, with love and compassion and joy and happiness and make all those months of pain and suffering. I'm going to say, I don't know because I'm a guy and I can't really speak into that that well, but kind of disappear, maybe? I don't know. Um, and it's, it's, this is what God is promising to Israel. Say, hey, hard times are going to come, but after a time, you're going to give birth to something and it's going to be incredible. And we find out what that incredible thing is in the next, uh, in the next chapter. So chapter 5, Micah 5, starting at verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah. I never can say that right. Uh, Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, ancient times. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely for then this greatness which will reach the ends of the earth. And he will be our peace. So these passages here are foreshadowing the arrival of the Messiah, the arrival of Jesus. So just to recap these few verses, and if you want to do more study, please go ahead and do that. Uh, Micah preaches, he says, when God rules, there'll be peace. There's going to be a time of uncomfortability, but then something is going to be birthed from you guys. It's going to be great. And who that is, is Jesus. That's my like little summary recap kind of thing, um, which is incredible. It's, a, it's, a, it's amazing. And um, so what, what's happening here is it's being revealed that Jesus, when he comes, when he comes in this moment in our narrative, he's going to transform everything, which he did, and which he does. And that's what Mike is letting them know, that there's someone who's going to come, who's going to change everything, that God understands that you're going through this, but this is coming. And God knew that we could never fix ourselves. He knew that the problems that come up all throughout Scripture, uh, through our history, the troubles we encounter, the sickness of the world, uh, comes out of us choosing to ignore the life that he wanted. It comes out of us choosing to, uh, while wrestling in amongst this dark moment here of our history. This disregard, this self-focused choice, this rejection, this rebellion, this sin is why even if we had enough money, all the money in the world, and we gave it to every single human being in this world so that every single person had enough. If we lived in a utopian state of mind, a human-valued utopian system would still feel empty, would still feel like something just isn't right. Don't get me wrong, like after what Colin said last week, God is very much passionate about justice, making things right, and we should take action. We should speak into these different social scenarios that we have an opportunity to speak into. We should do something about poverty. We should do something about our brothers and sisters that are struggling. But at the same time, there's no true social justice without the gospel. I'm going to say it again because people get kind of offended at that sometimes. There's no true social justice without the gospel. And to help unpack that, if it's like saying... 
it's like putting a band-aid on someone who's internally hemorrhaging. Our human good is never going to be good enough to fix ourselves. There's something deeper going on with us that no matter how much we develop, no matter how much we grow and do things, we can't, do, we can't overcome this. Only the hero can. Only the hero and the hero moment can. And so when God came, when God came and that he targeted the root of rebellion, not to start a, like a, a happy, happy, clappy peace movement kind of thing. He came to flip the script so that we would realize that God cares about our suffering, that God cares about the injustices and that we can't do it by ourselves, but we can join in with him moving forward. And we're here tonight because that resonates with us, or we're a person who's attracted and drawn to that. If you're like me, uh, it can become easy to uh, reduce what Jesus has done for us. It can be easy to uh, play down what God did on the cross because we talk about it so much, we, we think about it too much, and we tend to isolate it just to this moment. This moment with, with Jesus hanging on a tree, dying and being resurrected. And then when he, because of that resurrection, he becomes our forever friend. He becomes our buddy that we get to do life with. We kind of ignore the journey that we've gone through, the journey of God revealing himself again and again through this, and then the magnitude of this undoing this so that we can have that. We can, we can there's, there's a risk. We, we can, sometimes we can neuter God in our lives. We can neuter his power. We can neuter his, his glory. We can neuter his passion for justice. Uh, and we can neuter his, his jealousy for our soul. I mean, he wants all of us, not just our Sunday attendance. He wants all of us. So how do, how do we respond to this? How do we take what we've heard uh, through the chapters of Micah, how we've looked at this narrative thing? How do we respond to this? I have three points. First, I think we might need to speak up about it. Micah, give, had God came upon him and had gave him the words, but Micah still had to choose to speak up about it. He still had to speak up to say, hey, this is coming. Get ready for it. And there were a few that listened, but the majority didn't. And for us in our time, we live in a very similar time in society to what Micah did in his time. And we have the spoilers. We have the what's coming next. We know what's coming. And we have a responsibility to, to get those spoilers out there, to speak out about it. Because how are they going to prepare if they don't know what's to come? How are they going to prepare if they don't know what's to come? It's a challenging statement. So we might need to start speaking up about it. Second point, we might need to go somewhere uncomfortable. Micah came from the country, a place probably he knew very well, a place that he was chilled out and hung out with cows all the time. I don't know, it sounds like Tepuki. And he came from there to like the heart of Auckland. And he... he, and he he, he left where, what he knew, what he understood, what was comfortable, and came to a place that was foreign and overwhelming, 
uh, and intimidating. Maybe we might, ha- we might have to do that. We might be asked by God to go from our place that we find comfortable to a place that is uncomfortable. I was listening to a podcast this morning of uh, the No Longer Music guys. You might remember David Pierce, who spoke here at the beginning of the year, long dreadlocks guy. Um, and they've been in Turkey for the last few weeks. Now, Turkey is an Islamic country. There's 80 million people there and only 5,000 believers, Christian believers. Only 5,000 in a country of 80 million. And so what they've been doing over the last few weeks is these little street shows. Uh, and the thing is, like, you think street show, that shouldn't be too much of a problem. But currently in Turkey, there's a state of emergency where all public gatherings are illegal due to terrorism. So what they've been doing, they've been doing these little kind of like guerrilla street show things where they arrive at a venue, they find some local police, and they talk to them about, hey, can we do our show? And miraculously, time and time again, the police will be like, yeah, that's great. You can do it. Awesome. They've even had police come up after they've done it uh, for Bibles and more material about who Jesus is. But these guys, they, they get up, and they're running with this, this rickshack little, little production kind of thing, and they're, bo- and they're boldly proclaiming the spoilers. They're boldly proclaiming about Jesus who's coming in a, in a very strong Islamic country to the point where the undercover state police have been tracking them down over the last little while and shut down a bunch of their shows. Uh, they do face resistance from time to time from local religious leaders and things like that. It's an uncomfortable situation. But they were called by God and they went there. The third point is we might need to take risks. One of, my, one of my jobs here at BBC is I get to decide, design these kind of stage sets. And it was really special as we were putting up all these photographs of all these people. I, I, had to, I asked myself, what would it look like if each and every single one of these people took a risk? Now, I'm not saying it has to be you know, crazy and out there, but it's a risk to whatever context you're in. It could be talking to that guy at lunch. It could be saying a prayer for your sports team before you practice or before you go out for a game. It could be sitting down with your, your buddy over a beer and talking about how life really is treating you. It could, be, it could be something like that. Or it could be something like you go to Turkey and do something radical like what the No Longer Music guys are doing, or you go to the Middle East, or you go to the, the rougher parts of New Zealand and you'd be salt and you'd be light in, in, in those areas as well. Because if you think about it, what Micah was doing, coming into the big city, speaking against the powers of the day in words that aren't very, you know, like, oh, thanks, Micah, that was great. He's using God's authority to condemn what they're doing. That's risky. And we see throughout the scriptures, the the disciples, they they took risks. They took risks for what they believed in. They They stepped out there, and some of them were killed for it, and some of them weren't but it's a risk in your context. I'm not asking you all to go out and become like frontline missionaries. Not all of us us are called to that. But I guess I am asking you to ask yourself the question, what would it look like to take a risk? If you want to explore that more, Andrew Gould this morning, I thought, spoke it perfectly in terms of his message this morning. You can watch that online this week about how you know, we're all, we're all called and we're all asked, and that can be intimidating, but sometimes we just have to push through fear and, and, and do it. So I'd encourage you to, to look at that if you, if you want to. 
But tonight as we close, we're going to take communion. And we're going to do communion a little bit differently. Not too differently. I mean, all that side of things is going to stay the same. It's just uh, you're thinking about it. I want to think of it differently tonight. Um, Because when we take communion, a lot of time we just remember what what Jesus has done, which is which is the core of what communion is. Remember that the the juice is, is his blood that was spilt for us. We remember the, the bread, which represents his body that was broken for us. But tonight, I want us to not only remember what he has done, I want us to reflect on what he has promised to do. And I, I want us to to say, hey, I want to take part in that. There's always this phrase that gets thrown out with communion, like come and partake in communion. Let's, I want to flip that tonight. Let's take part in communion. And that, what that means is saying, hey, Jesus, yes, I want to take part in your resolution. I recognize things are different now, that redemption has come and will, will come again, and I want to take part in that, in the restoration of our world, in the sharing of what you have done, in the fight for justice. I want to be part of that. I want to be part of what you sacrificed your life for. I remember, I acknowledge, I'm excited about what's to come, but I now want to actively take part in what you're doing. So in a moment, I'll, I'll, I'll get the band to come out now, but on these tables is the, is the elements, and what I would invite you to do is, as a way of closing, as a way of responding, you come and take the communion elements and you go back to your, to your seat. And... Yeah, reflect. Ask yourself maybe those questions, like maybe I need to speak up. Is there some place I need to go that is uncomfortable? Is there a risk I need to take? And then when it comes to communion, you remember, excited about what's to come, and then ask, how can I take my part of what you're doing here in this world? So I'm gonna I'm gonna pray and then invite you to to go to the tables and the band will do one more song for us tonight. But Jesus, I, I thank you. I thank you, thank you, thank you so much for what you have done, how you, have come, you came and you, you did what you did for us. And I'm excited about what is to come. I'm excited about the restoration of this world. It shows your heart that you care about your people here, that you care about what we're going through and that you, you, you've saved us. But now it's on us in a way to, to get out there and to share what is to come with others. Lord, help us to take our part, take our place in your redemption of this world, Lord. We thank you. We thank you that you, for what you have done. And Lord, I, I pray that these words tonight have permeated deep into our hearts tonight, Lord, for each and every single person here, Lord. I pray that you speak to each and every single person intimately tonight, Lord, that may they feel you tangibly close tonight, Lord. Speak to us through communion. Speak to us through what the band is going to sing and bring right now, Lord. But I thank you just for each and every single person who was here tonight, Lord, because there wasn't an accident. And Lord, I pray for each person that they may not leave without first doing the business that you want to do with each and every single one of them, Lord. Whatever that is, Jesus. I thank you for all these things in your name, Lord. Amen. So feel free to come, take communion when you're ready. You can go back to your seats if you want to, or you can find a place in the auditorium and to reflect. Uh, And then I'll come and close after the band's done.
Thank you.